This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, freedom of speech and expression is a fundamental element of vibrant democracies around the globe. But those freedoms are increasingly threatened. As people and societies adjust to new forms of communication far beyond traditionally civic spaces, norms concerning free speech rights are evolving. It's a good time in which to better understand our modern reality concerning speech rights and their historical underpinnings. Fortunately, author Jakob Mishingama has immersed himself in this topic for years. His new book is Free Speech, A Global History from Socrates to Social Media. In it, he guides us through the history of free speech in various societies, presenting the views of advocates and opponents. He points to gains linked to free speech rights and what we stand to lose as those rights are restricted. It is famously a crime to falsely cry fire in a crowded theater. Where else should we draw the legal line? Especially in an age of digital disinformation and misinformation. This talk addresses whether progressive change is more likely to come about from censuring or allowing free speech, and if each of us has a responsibility to counter hate speech with our privileged free speech. Jakob Mishingama is a lawyer, a human rights advocate, and the host of the podcast Clear and Present Danger, A History of Free Speech. He is interviewed here by South Seattle Emerald reporter Carolyn Bick. Town Hall Seattle presented this event on February 16th as part of their Civics series. Please note, this recording contains one unedited word of an adult nature. It's obviously quite a lengthy and weighty subject, free speech, but if you could talk about a little bit how it developed differently in different cultures and countries and the common threads among them, uh, that would be great. Yeah. Um, so I uh, I would say that the 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 available evidence suggests to us that for much of human history, um, speech codes have been adopted to protect the the rulers from their subjects uh, and not the other way around. And free speech is a very uh, counterintuitive and atypical. Uh, development. Um, in, in many ways, you could perhaps argue that, that human beings have evolved, you know, our, our software that we come with have evolved with a default mode of intolerance. And then we've developed this little patch uh, called free speech and tolerance on top of that, but it has to be constantly guarded and updated uh, so that our uh, so that our default mode doesn't override it uh, and back into to intolerance but where i locate free speech as the first sort of part of, of the political system and a, and a cultural trait is the 
Athenian democracy that uh, originated some 2,500 years uh, ago. By the standards of the day, not by our standards, it was a, a radically egalitarian democracy in the sense that freeborn male citizens had a direct voice uh, in the, the laws that were adopted. So they could debate uh, and vote directly. But more, perhaps even more importantly, they also had the concept of called parousia, which means something like uninhibited speech, so that everyone could participate in, 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 in the public debate. And they prided themselves, the Athenians, of their, of their tolerance, the ability to to mug the high and mighty, to even poke fun of the gods, even though, as Socrates found out, there were limits uh, to, to, to this tolerance. Now, this contrasted with just about everywhere else, and especially the bitter rivals of the Athenians in Sparta. So we have this famous orator called Demosthenes, and he said, in Athens, you can, you know, you can criticize the Athenian constitution and, and, and praise the Spartan constitution. But if you're in the oligarchic Sparta, you're only allowed to praise the Spartan constitution and you can't, uh, you, you can't say anything uh, positive about the Athenian constitution. And I think that still is a sort of a succinct definition of, of free speech, sort of the, the, the litmus test. Can you criticize the political system under which you, you live? Now, the Athenian democracy uh, obviously did not uh, live on uh, for, <laughs> forever. It went through a series of crises. It was overthrown by oligarchs who, as the, their very first move, uh, overthrew democracy, it came back, but ultimately it, 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 it went downhill. And then free speech was also part of the Roman Republic, but in the more elitist uh, version. So it was more of a top-down um, approach to free speech, elites, uh, the, the well-born, well-educated exercise free speech, not so much the, the plebs, the unwashed mob. And as we maybe can get back to these two, these two concepts of free speech, an egalitarian and elitist one, has been intentioned throughout the history of free speech. But be, before we sort of really develop a concept of free speech as such, we, you know, it, it takes a while. So we really have to get into, you know, get sort of nuggets of free speech theory in the late 16th century, but really we have to get into the 17th century where you have people like the levelers in England who are sort of radically egalitarian proponents of, 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 of early democracy. You have someone like Spinoza in the Dutch Republic who also argues for, for, for free speech. And then, of course, with the Enlightenment, free speech becomes a very popular idea all of a sudden until the French Revolution occurs. And then suddenly free speech is seen as a harbinger of of everything that is bad, and 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 Europe in particular goes into a very long uh, period of sort of reactionary backlash against free speech, which even makes it to the U.S. with something like the Sedition Act. We might we might get get back to that, but I think you know ultimately, free speech is never completely won or lost. Uh, it's it's a it's a battle to and fro, and and I think there's a lot of recurring patterns in the arguments that I used to counter. Uh, uh, free speech and, and 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 why people will say, well, free speech is important, but uh, we need to limit this or 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 or, or the, those that you know, depending on 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 your position and 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 outlook. Um, and and I would say that and acknowledge that free speech, you know, comes with harms and costs. Um, so so, it's, so free speech is not only a, a good principle; it can be used for for harms. Um, uh, but and, and it is an experiment. No one can sort of guarantee the outcome of free speech that it will always be positive. But I think that looking back at history, I would argue that that free speech 
has been a very uh, beneficial experiment that is worth continuing and that if we sort of erode the cultural foundations on which free speech ultimately depends, uh, our world will be a lot less free, tolerant, uh, equal um, uh, and, and progressive, really. I really appreciate you being able to so very quickly like tie that up with the bow because there are so many things that you said that obviously weave in throughout your book. And I did think it was a really interesting point that you called free speech still an experiment because I think that in quite a few countries, including the United States, we like to pretend that we have it all figured out and that it's always perfect, but that's not actually the case. And it doesn't matter whether it's written down on a piece of paper, people still find loopholes and ways to hamstring free speech, um, even in our so-called you know, progressive democracy of America. And I wanted to get your take on you know, how not just the U.S. is doing right now with free speech, but also other other Western countries. And then, you know, extending further than that, places um, in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia and uh, places like China or Japan, any any of those places, really. I, it's there are common threads, but I definitely want to hear you talk about more about them. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's one way to look at it, you know, with sort of through a positive view, a positive spin on the state of free speech today is that we're living in a golden age. So, you know, if you go back uh, some, some, you know, some hundred years, uh, you know, not, not even several hundred years, but, you know, there was, there was you know, a hundred years in, in this country, in the U.S., you know, if you were a socialist and you were opposed to American involvement in World War One, sort of just about a hundred years ago, uh, a little more than 100 years ago, you could be sent to prison 10 or 20 years, then the Supreme Court would say, oh, yeah, the First Amendment doesn't pr- protect that. Right where I'm, I'm sitting, I'm sitting close to Lafayette Square um, in, in Washington, D.C., and in 1917, you had a number of women's rights activists who were burning an effigy of President Woodrow Wilson because they wanted the right to vote, and they were arrested. Uh, they were carted off, arrested, and fined. Uh, today, you know, I was living in New York in 2018 and I, with my family, we went into a museum when we went out from the museum with my kids, tens of thousands of women were, uh, protesting, demonstrating against the president wearing pink pussy hats and shouting obscene things at the president and the NYPD was there to protect them and their right to speech. So, 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 you know, uh, that's obviously a sign of huge progress that, you know, uh, but, you know, if you look, take a more negative view, I would say that we're living, that, that the golden age is in decline. That so, so we live through a free speech recession. We see that in authoritarian states, China as, with the, as, as, as the most egregious example. Um, but, uh, but, but Russia uh, is another uh, example where, where Putin's stranglehold on Russian politics depends very much on him killing, imprisoning journalists, um, uh, uh, and so on. You also see it in sort of illiberal democracies in in the Euro- in, in Europe, like Hungary and Poland, where, for instance, laws uh, limiting uh, the free speech free speech of LGBT plus activists are 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 being uh, used increasingly uh, to further sort of intolerant agendas. But you also see it in liberal democracies, uh, my own country, Denmark, Germany, um, which has a more militant. Uh, democratic tradition sort of where where you see democratic governments who 
no longer view free speech as to the, you know, the, the free speech in the 90s after the end of the Cold War in the early early 2000s, free speech was seen as a very positive value as sort of the foundation of democracy. Today, I think there's a tendency to view free speech as, as also constituting a threat, uh, especially with social media uh, and the internet. And I would say in the US, <clears throat> free speech has probably never enjoyed a stronger legal protection under the First Amendment uh, against the government. Um, of course, there are exceptions of you know, national security uh, issues where, where we've seen journalists come, come into hot water. But in general, you can say, you know, you really have to make an effort to, 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 to be convicted for, for your opinions in, 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 in the US. But I would argue that the, the cultural foundations of, uh, of free speech in the US is under pressure from, from both sides, if you want me to sort of generalize. So there's an idea among people on the left that free speech entrenches unequal power relations and is being used uh, to uh, to target minorities, um, uh, sort of to punch down, and therefore, in order to uh, ensure equality, in in order to ensure the equal dignity of uh, oppressed minorities, um, free speech needs to be limited. On the other hand, you see now, uh, especially. You know, you basically see a wave, whole wave, a tsunami of of Republican-sponsored bills to target so-called critical race theory that is not only limited to K-12, but even into higher education. And also in certain states, sort of copy-pasting Hungarian-Polish attempts to sort of limit what can be said about um, LGBT plus um, um, issues in, you know, that cannot be raised in, in, in education, uh, for instance. And I think... Ultimately, you know, the, the, the First Amendment was, was adopted in 1791. The wording hasn't changed. But, but you know, uh, as I mentioned, in 1917, you could be arrested if you, fought, if you were advocating for the right to vote as a woman. Today, that, that would be unthinkable. But if, if the cultural foundation of, of free speech is undermined, then I think the legal protection will ultimately also be eroded. And that's why I think it's a dangerous moment in in, in this country right now with the political polarization where people are unable to sort of look at free speech as a principle and distinguish it from those who exercise it. Because, you know, in open democracies, when you champion free speech, most of the time it's about holding your nose and sort of defending the principle. But that does not mean that you agree with the statements by the, per, by, by the persons who exercise free spe- uh, uh, their right to free speech. So that was a long sort of answer to, to your question. Um, no, no, actually, honestly, it was going to be my my second question to you. Well, third, I suppose. Question two was going to be, you know, how do we see that in this country? And it's not just from one side. And you covered that perfectly. Um, and so I, I did want to ask, you know, should, given what we're seeing from certain parties, and right now I am thinking, obviously, of Donald Trump classic example currently for the current age. Um, but then also more recently with the push to deplatform Joe Rogan for spreading misinformation about COVID using the N-word multiple times on his podcast, uh, just going wholesale, doing some not so great things, let's put it that way. Should there be limits to stuff like that, especially when they are such, you know, powerful figures. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Trump has Trump started and has not 
bothered to brook or stop a wave of massive amounts of misinformation regarding COVID. And one could argue that, in fact, his rhetoric around the virus is part of why we're in the situation we're in now. Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring that up. So, So let me mention sort of two different polls. So during Trump's presidency, he obviously, he, as, as, as you know perfectly well, attacked the media as sort of enemies of the people, and, and it was sort of the fake news media. And there was a poll that was published in The Economist, and it said, and this was in 2017, where, where, he, where Trump was also talking about opening up libel laws, uh, which in, in the U.S. under the First Amendment is a really high bar before public officials can uh, can sue someone like you when you write critical things about those who, who, who so you 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 enjoy a high degree of, of protection, uh, whereas in, in previous times if you wrote an article and there were that you might have gotten one little factual thing uh, wrong you could be sued and that would be crippling uh, especially if you weren't sort of working for the for the New York Times uh, so that would that, that, <laughs> and. Uh, and 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 there was a, a plurality of Republicans, forty three percent, who supported the president being given powers to uh, to punish media who were engaged in biased or inaccurate information. Now uh, that you know, so 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 if if that had been you know passed during Trump's presidency, that would mean that that Trump could have gone after, you know, the Washington Post or the New York Times or, you know, any of the media that daily CNN, probably high on, on his list, uh, that, that daily attacked him. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, some, some of the stories that were published about him turned out not to be uh, accurate. There, there obviously have, have been cases, you know, where, where sort of um, people have writing, uh, been writing stuff about him that, that, that was not uh, factually accurate. So he could have used that. Uh, and and rep- whereas Democrats were, were opposed to giving the president the power. But in 2021, Democrats are now in favor of the federal government and tech companies being given more powers and doing more about curbing misinformation, whereas Republicans are completely skeptical about, about it. And I think this shows the danger uh, of of giving, uh, of, of sort of having centralized com- command and control of information so in, in, I would argue that in these cases, the cure is worse than the disease when it comes, when, if you try to use censorship and restriction to limit it. And, and, and there's a very interesting case for my own country, Denmark, where we should scrap all, um, has scrapped all restrictions. Um, and, and, and the Danish health authorities have had to put up an English language um, webpage to counter misinformation. And this is misinformation spread primarily by American blue check Twitter profiles with sort of sort of the, the ones that argue for strict restrictions who do, for, because you know COVID has become part of the culture war in, in America, it doesn't fit the narrative that there's a country that that, that, that has scrapped restrictions uh, and, 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 and that just seems not to, to be falling into chaos. So who gets to this to decide? You know, you know, is it the Danish health authorities that are spreading misinformation, or is it you know blue check Twitter uh, in the U.S. And should and, and and if the solution is to sort of that 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 Twitter or Facebook should 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 restrict uh, misinformation, who sh- who sh- who should they restrict, and who should decide it uh, ultimately? This is of course always the burning question 
in uh, when it comes to, to to free speech and restrictions, who gets to decide, and do we trust the ones who get to decide? Because all human beings are unfortunately fallible, like likely to fall into the trap of confirmation bias, and uh, and I would trust very few of us to 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 uh, be able to, to to enforce the red lines uh, completely objectively and 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 without regard to our sort of underlying preferences and ideologies and and and, and so on. And so then it's there because as you just mentioned there's such a fine line and honestly obviously it, it, a lot of the information information misinformation regarding covid um and what people should do and shouldn't do there are a lot of external factors on that too but it also it, there's a fine line as you just pointed out between too much restriction and i guess honestly not enough restriction and that that's that's the question should there be restrictions on free speech and if so what does that balance look like in order to facilitate progress within society but not let every tom dick and harry run around with a blue check on twitter and say hey covid's not a big deal you're not going to die Yeah, and you know, I, I think you know it's it's an unenviable task for, for for anyone. Also, because the science just develops, and lots of sort of health authorities have been wrong. Not because they've been paid by Bill Gates uh, and the, the Soros Foundation <laughs> to, uh, to 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 uh, enslave uh, people, but just because you know it's it's something that we haven't been confronted with and the science is 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 developing and you know science is a progress where you test various hypotheses and you know you you're you're working around the clock uh and and, and you know scientists get get a lot of things wrong or or they get it partially right uh and and you know you don't you know who who has the ability to fact check that in in real time not a lot of people so i can understand why facebook and twitter would remove something like who someone who says you know drink bleach you know to 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 cure covid but sort of you can get into all kinds of other things discussions you know um you, you know i i you know i'm i'm someone who's uh, double vaccinated and boosted Uh, but I also have two kids and, and you know, I, and, and they're vaccinated as well. But, you know, I think we should be able to have a discussion whether, you know, uh, the, 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 the benefits outweigh, outweigh the potential risk. You know, I think that's a, that, that, that's a discussion that no one should sort of fact check uh, in, in, or, you know, they should fact check it, but, but no one should sort of have the, the ultimate say also because who knows, maybe in five years, we, we will have learned things about COVID uh, that we will accept as facts that, that we were wrong, that, you know, our thinking on certain issues might be wrong now. Um, so, so that's why, and, and, you know, there's a, actually a very interesting report by the, 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 the Royal uh, Society, which is Britain's leading uh, scientific organization. And they explicitly argue that, Um, deleting content is not only inefficient but also counterproductive. So it, it it might actually help to erode trust in 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 scientific institutions. Also, just because of the inherent uncertainty uh, that is that is involved in science. Uh, of course, there are other categories. You know, um, I, I thought, for instance, that 
during the January 6th uh, attack on the Capitol, I thought it was the right thing to deplatform Trump at, during that moment because it was, you know, at the time it was a violent attack on the peaceful transfer of power and he did not uh, choose to use his position uh, as the most powerful man in the country to, to, to calm, calm things down. So, so I thought, but, but I, but, but I also thought it was problematic that it was a decision with no real basis in the terms and that it was sort of an, an indefinite uh, suspension. Um, and, and of course, then you get into the whole, you know, um, um, I have strong views <laughs> about, about Donald Trump, but then, you know, there are other world leaders who I think have done worse things than Donald Trump to their populations and who have a, 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 a megaphone on, on Twitter. Uh, so you get into, to, to sort of the, the question of, you know, should, should Trump be banned forever? Whereas sort of, uh, the, the Iranian, uh, leaders who, you know, engage in sort of genocidal rhetoric and, and, uh, and, and extreme speech and all kinds of issues, uh, that's fine. Um, uh, so, 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 but, but in general, I tend to be sort of very much on the side who's, who, who, who's, who says that, you know, any viewpoint, uh, should not be, especially by the government should, should not be, should not be, uh, punishable unless there's sort of, uh, an incitement to, uh, to, to a real tangible, uh, harm, which means that I would also, uh, allow sort of racist speech. I, I don't think uh, racist speech should be should be punished. And and one of the reasons uh, is that I think that the history of free speech shows that that free speech has been perhaps one of the most powerful engines of human equality that we've ever stumbled upon as a species. And I think American history in particular shows this. So uh, I, maybe the most draconian. Uh, restrictions on free speech were adopted uh, in southern states in the 1830s as a response to abolitionists uh, who who uh, who targeted the South with pamphlets, uh, sort of appealing to to whites to to saying you know free, that slavery could not be justified, and and take a, take a take a state like Virginia. So Virginia. Is the, is the first state that adopts a Bill of Rights, a state Bill of Rights in, in, in June 1776, even before the Declaration of Independence, which, which says that the press freedom is, is the bulwark of liberty. But then in 1836, Virginia passes a law which makes it a crime to deny that white uh, masters have a right to property in their black slaves um, and, and uh, also makes it a crime to uh, encourage resistance to slavery um, along like a whole laundry list of laws that are basically just uh, 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 in, uh, their purpose, their clear purpose is to defend the institution of slavery against criticism. And there's a, no, a number of Southern states who do the same. In some of them, they adopt the death penalty. I don't think it was, it was actually enforced, but we, so we have examples of someone in uh, in Alabama, who was prosecuted for for saying for for writing that slavery was against the Bible, you know, it was against the God's commands, and 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 uh, and 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 on the other hand, you had abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, uh, who argued that the free speech was a very precious right, especially to the oppressed, and 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 who said that free speech would defeat slavery, and I think it was right, you know, I think the adoption of these extremely draconian laws in the South was an admission 
that you could not defend the institution of slavery in a free and open debate. If you were, give, if you were to give Frederick Douglass free passage into Virginia or Alabama, and he, he was uh, you know, allowed to debate with a prominent white slaveholder at the institution of slavery, Frederick Douglass is going to kick your ass. You know, there's no way you can win that argument uh, against him. And I think they knew, uh, they knew that you know, the only way they could defend and justify the institution of slavery to themselves, to Southern community, was to try and limit sort of arguments uh, 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 against it. And, 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 and you, know, uh, you know, unfortunately, of course, with the uh, abolishment of, of, of slavery, there was still a very long period with Jim Crow laws, but the, the civil rights movement is, is one of the reasons why the First Amendment has, uh, you know, includes such a strong protection of free speech because the, the, the civil rights movement won a number of landmark uh, cases from from the fifties into the early sixties, including New York Times versus Sullivan, which which is the one that 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 you uh, that, that that protects you uh, from 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 authorities uh, if, if you write something they don't they don't like. Um, and and John Lewis, um, uh, late congressman and, and civil rights icon, famously said that you know without free speech and the First Amendment, the civil rights movement would have been uh, a bird without wings. And, and, and I think that story is often forgotten uh, when people out of good intentions say, you know, we need to prohibit racist or intolerant speech is that restrictions on free speech will always be adopted and enforced by those in power. And, uh, and they tend to that democracies that will be majorities and, and then they will typically be aimed uh, at, at minorities. And, you know, in the beginning, that might be, uh, something that you sympathize with, but then you take the bills that we see now in the South and you see suddenly they target, you know, uh, you know, teaching uh, um, slavery in, 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 in uh, the, the history of slavery in, 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 in higher education. I mean, that's a, a backward step, a massive backward and, and dangerous step. So this is actually a perfect question from an audience member that I thought follows up beautifully with this. Uh, is it hard balancing your morals with freedom of speech? How do you navigate your personal feelings on the matter? Um, of course, you know, I, you know, I have, like most people, I'm, uh, you know, I think most people are 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 more likely to be. Um, governed by their feelings than, than sort of cold rationality. I think that's, that's us as a species. Um, so, of course, there are times where I feel sort of my veins sort of uh, pulsating and, and, and I feel sort of the urge, what, let's just shut this person down. You know, it's a perfect, you know, we can all understand. So if you're sort of defending peaceful civil rights activists, who are be you know in the south in the fifties and sixties who are being attacked by do police dogs and hosed down and beaten with clubs for 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 just demanding equal justice? It, you know, free speech is a powerful uh, you know it, it really energizes us. But then fast forward to Charlottesville and you see people standing in KKK uniforms, and then you know suddenly free speech seems like a very abstract principle. Uh, you know, why am I defending this person's right to free speech? Uh, and and it becomes much more difficult to convince yourself that that it, that it is important. But but I and, and that's why I think the history of free speech is good because 
um, when you when you look throughout the history, uh, it might be easier for you to remember why you're fighting for this principle that you're not actually fighting to uh, to protect uh, the, uh, or, or, or sort of support the right of of, of white supremacists to uh, viciously uh, attack uh, minorities. That's not that's not really what it's about, and that in fact free speech has been instrumental in the fight against uh, white supremacy in order to support and, and strengthen the rights uh, of, uh, of minorities. And I think, you know, obviously in, in this country, you still have huge issues um, when it comes to racism, when it comes to minorities. But nonetheless, you know, if you, if you look at attitudes towards uh, interracial marriage, for instance, in 1958, it was it was four percent of Americans who were who could accept it. Today it's something like ninety four percent. Today I was in Virginia with my wife. Um, uh, I guess in this country, I don't know if I, I'm, I'm, I would be uh, considered black. Uh, um, I, I, in my country, I don't we don't think about these issues so so much. But my wife is is a white European, and and you know in nineteen sixty seven a marriage between us in Virginia would have been against the law. Um, uh, so, so that's a huge sign of progress. You could say the same thing about same-sex marriages today. Something like seventy percent of Americans, even a majority of Republicans, who support it. And that social change has not come about by censoring or punishing those who were against um, interracial marriages. Uh, it didn't come about by putting into prison uh, bigots or or or, or, the, or homophobes uh, or the like. It, to a very wide degree, I think, has come about through activism, which is defended by, uh, by, by the First Amendment, uh, by appeals to, to, to the common humanity through sort of a critical media shining the light on, 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 on the fundamental injustice and inhumanity of, of treating uh, groups differently based on, on, on the color of their skin or who they love. Uh, and, and, and that, uh, I think, has, 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 is much more powerful in changing attitudes than you know, censoring people, which which tends not to be to, to convince them. You know, putting people in, in in prison or censoring them tends not to convince people that they're wrong. And in, in fact, in many ways, it, it 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 has the opposite effect, creating this martyr effect and and giving them more more attention. Um, and um, so 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 that's why I, I can convince myself that you know, even when it comes to to um, you know. Uh, white supremacists, I, I, I would not want uh, the government to, to punish or, or restrict their views. But I also think that if you have such a strong position on free speech as I do, you have a moral obligation to use your own free speech to condemn those views. So if I was to say, you know, I, I believe this white supremacist has a right to free speech, I would also very vehemently use my own freeze to denounce those views. And also to, I think you also have a moral obligation to lend support to those minorities who might feel a a disproportional burden of, uh, of hate speech uh, leveled against them. Uh, And and I think that, that, that's, that's, that's a part of the equation as well. If you just say free speech is great, uh, um, but don't also use your own uh, speech to counter hatred and, and and show your support and solidarity with those who are the target of hatred, then I don't think the advocacy of, of free speech is as effective as, as it could be. So uh, another question from uh, an audience member uh, is, what specifically is the, if, if 
people take nothing else away from your book. What is the main point you want to get across? And do you feel you offer a new perspective that hasn't been talked about in the realm of free speech, um, which as you mentioned in your book has literally been occurring. The experiments has been occurring for thousands of years across hundreds of countries. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know that there's been another book that covers the same um, time span. And also, I, I also cover non-Western uh, events. So I cover, for instance, apartheid South Africa, um, how British colonialism used censorship to, to, uh, to, to, to clamp down on anti-colonial movements, how religious tolerance in the Mughal Empire in India um, what, what was was a big thing. So I think I, I don't think that has been treated in the same volume or in the same book before. But I think you know what, one of the things that I I don't know if it's unique, but but so this idea of uh, egalitarian versus elitist uh, free speech, I think, is is a very something that I hope people will find persuasive and 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 and, and a takeaway. Um, the the uh, so 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 that's one sort of uh, and 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 sort of the, the the broad defense of egalitarian or free and equal speech with its roots in, in the Athenian democracy is is something which I I hope is um, contributes to 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 a new perspective on on, on free speech. But I I, I wouldn't be uh, I, I wouldn't claim that I've sort of created a whole new. Uh, uh, perspective on, on free speech and offering arguments that have never ever uh, been been heard uh, before, because there there are lots of, of people who have thought about free speech uh, before. But but hopefully I I I, I can sort of uh, show the broad span of the history of free speech and and uh, and provide perspectives for the past through the that that we can better understand through the prism of of of, uh, of the past. And you actually, you mentioned something I've been dying to ask you, but I definitely want to ask some audience member questions first. Um, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating portions of your book regarding, regarding attacks on free speech was the portion called Elite Panic. I was wondering if you could potentially explain for listeners and viewers what you mean by that phrase and how it plays into free speech, or sorry, rather anti-free speech ideology. Yeah, so it goes back to this idea of, of egalitarian versus elitist free speech. And, and so what we see a recurrent theme throughout the history of free speech is that every time the public sphere is expanded, either through new technology, so that could be the printing press, it could be the radio or the telegraph, or through political development. So, um, you know, uh, extending the right to vote to the poor and propertyless, to, to women, to racial and religious minorities, those who are in power, who act as sort of the institutional gatekeepers to the public sphere, are afraid of the effects of giving, say, the unwashed mob a voice in, in public affairs because, you know, women, um, minorities and others are too credulous, fickle or dangerous to be, to be, to be given a, a voice. It has to be uh, the, the learned elite uh, that, uh, that, that, that sort of acts as, as the gatekeeper to, uh, to, to keep the public sphere responsible. And we see that, I think, today. You know, in the 1990s, uh, I think most democracies were sort of, th there was this idea that the, the internet would, would bring fr free and equal speech to everyone uh, and that it would be a force uh, for, for unmitigated good uh, and censorship would be a thing of the past. Uh, that didn't quite play out this way. And today, um, I think a lot of governments see uh, the internet and social media 
as 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 uh, not necessarily a good and something that needs to be contained. And so we have this tendency of of elite panics where elites try to say, oh, now we need to pass laws that force tech companies to police uh, the internet, or you know, we need laws that you know. Uh, you see that in a number of European countries, for instance, that that not not only lawful speech but also harmful speech, you know, and how do you define that? Should be removed by 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 tech uh, uh, giants, and and you know that that is that is nothing new. We we we've seen that again and again uh, throughout history. So if you take um, if you take Britain, for instance. Um, one of my favorite persons in the book is a, is a guy called Richard Carlyle. And in the early 19th century, he spent a total of six years in prison for blasphemy and for the crime of selling Tom Paine's work, sort of uh, age of, of, of reason, for instance, uh, to the masses. So you were allowed to sell Tom Paine to the higher classes, but not the lower classes. And, and so the attorney general explicitly says that, you know, you know, you can't, you know, the lower classes have to be protected uh, because uh, against these attacks on, on, on religion and the political system, because they, unlike the rich and powerful, don't have the means to really interpret this. Uh, and, and, and the sort of the British class-based system uh, with the rich and powerful at the top and the lower classes at the bottom uh, is a is, is, is a political system that depends on, on the higher classes uh, being able to sift through information and filtering down, filtering, uh, down to, to, to the lower classes what, 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 what is fit for them as determined by the rich and, and, and powerful. And, 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 and yeah, and, and you see that in, in many instances throughout uh, the history of free speech. And I think there's a desperate attempt again to 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 try and reimpose some kind of top down control by democracies uh, today, which um, again is a, in a some ways an understandable impulse, um, because there are, as I mentioned, harms and costs. I don't think January sixth could have happened without social media, for instance. Um, uh, so that definitely uh, played a role. But again, the cure tends to be worse than the disease. Uh, so, so what what kind of laws would you have had to pass to avoid a January sixth? Uh, I mean, how many different types of you know? So, so say you you crack down on on sort of consp- deranged conspiracy theories about the, the 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 election on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And then what about Telegram? You know, what about Parler? What about all this? You know, and you uh, how hard would you have had to crack down? On, on people spreading these things in order for it to to uh, to, to to have been an efficient type of, of, of censorship, and, and that's why I think ultimately democracies have a hard time using effective censorship means. It's much easier for the Chinese because they don't have to pretend they care about free speech; um, they can just you know clamp down on on, on any type uh, of speech, and, and they don't have to to. To, to, to worry about it, but but there are limits to what democracies can do without betraying their own betraying their own principles and also leaving behind precedents for for those uh, illiberals who would like to assume power and and maybe use uh, laws passed with good intentions to completely snuff out democracy. And in fact, I argue in the book that this is what happened. in in the Weimar Republic in Germany, where the Nazis ultimately used laws democratic laws that were supposed to protect democracy 
to abolish uh, democracy. Um, and and so, so that to me is a, is a, is a dangerous precedent. I would like to make the one point that some have speculated that if the FBI had done its job, January 6th wouldn't happen and we wouldn't have made yeah. any tamp down speech. And, 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 and I, you know, I, I, I totally agree with that. You know, I think, you know, I read, I think it was a Senate report and it said that, you know, one of the reasons why the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security didn't do enough was the the difficulty in distinguishing constitutionally protected speech from credible threats of action. But nonetheless, you could say, okay, we we don't know whether this person says, you know, bring your guns. Does 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 he mean, you know, is he serious or is he sort of grandstanding on social media? Oh, you know, let's not take a chance. So maybe we bring in a few more uh, people to actually protect. Uh, the capital, and and that would not have entailed sort of censorship. It would just have have entailed protecting the very um, heart of American democracy, where the peaceful transfer of power, which is pretty important in a democracy, in a democracy was taking place. Uh, and then you know, um, uh, police and, and security could have used uh, legitimate force against those who who tried to disrupt that, because obviously. You know, free speech does not entail a, a right to violently attack uh, the peaceful transfer of power. I don't. I don't think. Uh, well, some Republicans uh, apparently try to argue that, that 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 is the case, but I think you know that 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 is a pretty outlandish definition of of uh, of, of free speech. This last question uh, from an audience member dovetails perfectly with that. Given how dizzyingly and increasingly effective computational disinformation has become an, at manipulating our cognition, does democracy still have a chance? How do we preserve free speech and protect our cognition from malicious, malicious actors? Yeah, th- this is great because, um, you know, p- after the t- 2016 election, there was this narrative, common narrative, that the election was more or less decided by by false information and disinformation um, uh, favoring Trump. And I think there's been a lot, and and this is is very much part of the elite panic um, narrative, but there's a lot of really interesting uh, research which shows that the share of disinformation on on Twitter and Facebook is actually a lot less than sort of the, the, the common narrative, and also that it's not very effective so those who stumble down the rabbit hole of, of MAGAism are those tend to be people who are already hardcore uh, Trumpists. So it's not that, you know, you put out uh, a, a, sort of uh, the, the MAGA gospel and then, you know, suddenly um, liberal West Coasters turn into uh, to, to members of the MAGA cult. Uh, generally, it, it, it doesn't. T- tend to work uh, work like that, but it became sort of uh, you know when something when something ha- like that happens completely out of, uh, of the blue and 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 which disrupts everything, you tend to look for easy um, uh, explanations and and it's it's much easier to say well it was just sort of we were people the, the masses were being manipulated by these platforms and that's uh, that's the reason why why everything uh, went to hell when when in perhaps. It's a much more complicated question uh, than 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 uh, and and I, and again, I'm not saying that disinformation online doesn't play a role as as the January sixth attack showed it, it it did. So at but but I would say at scale, disinformation may not be as efficient as some people think 
But of course, if you if you are able to convince two thousand people, that might be enough to to attack the capital. Uh, and 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 and, uh, and but 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 in general, I I I worry not so much about um, disinformation as sort of the common narrative, uh, which which sort of said that that people were. And also, this idea about uh, echo chambers and filter bubbles has also shown in, in research not that, in fact, people online tend to get more different perspectives um, than than, uh, than than people who, who mostly get uh, offline uh, and news. So, so there are lots of people that lots of problems with our uh, with, with the digital ecosystem of information and opinion. Uh, but but I think still we we need to keep a perspective and and not. Uncritically, by this idea that 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 the mass of the population is simply being manipulated by 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 fake uh, by fake news or disinformation. So, I, so in short, I think we can, uh, but but I but I would like to see ultimately a more decentralized information system, uh, and and also I think I'd like you know users to have more control themselves over content rather than Mark Zuckerberg uh, sort of. Deciding on a whim, uh, you know who gets to to speak and, and who gets thrown off uh, the platform. I think that that's a great point. And I could you speak a little bit more? Um, yeah, we have about eight five minutes or so. Um, yeah. But before we wrap up and jump off, could you speak a little bit more about what a decentralized information system would look like, um, where Mark Zuckerberg does not have this, you know, yeah. arbitrary authority. That you know, Facebook so randomly applies. Yeah, you know, so <clears throat> I'm pretty old, uh, so I remember the the, the blockosphere, uh, which was a much more decentralized uh, internet. Internet, right? So no one would care about you know how a blog, even a very popular blog with hundreds and thousands of readers, no one would care about the comments that were allowed or not allowed because it didn't affect the entire ecosystem of information. And 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 so we did. We don't have the same uh, discussions that we have today, where you have these huge centralized platforms who basically decide the practical exercise of free speech around the globe, and which has massive consequences. And I think sometimes we also tend to forget in 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 wealthy uh, established democracies, you know, we we fight about relative. Uh, sometimes inconsequential things. Uh, whereas, but if you live in Nigeria or or Russia. Um, uh, then, you know, where, where uh, social media platforms can just be switched off. You know, there are lots of countries where social media platforms are actually the, is the only way you can really circumvent official propaganda and censorship. We don't have the same situation in democracies. So I think sometimes we're being a bit, you know, we're showing a lack of solidarity when, when we demand sort of strict restrictions on free speech because the consequences flow down and they affect uh, people in illiberal democracies much more um, uh, negatively than, than than they do us, but but so a decentralized. I think the most radically sort of decentralized ecosystem of information and opinion would be one where we had fewer of these big centralized platforms. So a bit back to the to the blockosphere. How that would come about, I have no idea. Uh, I'm 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 just a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> 
but hopefully there are people sitting somewhere in Seattle in a, in you know in a garage somewhere fiddling with something and they'll sort of resist being bought up by Mark Zuckerberg uh, before they launch a, a successful competitor and and you know hopefully there are many tinkering with 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 great new uh, platforms that 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 can create a more healthy uh, environment but the other I think that is more feasible in the short term is, as I mentioned, sort of giving more control to users because say you are a female journalist and you have, you might be have a disincentive to engage on social media because you're attacked with misogyny, with misogyny and so on. But that misogyny might not, uh, first of all, but there might be, you know, you might have different limits on what you find offensive uh, uh, content. Also, the misogyny might not run afoul of legal uh, limits on uh, on, uh, on free speech. But if you were able to use a filter that was easily easy to, to click on and off, and that was not developed by Facebook, but perhaps a women's rights group, then, you know, you yourself would have much more control over what you were confronted with. But there might be other women who said, you know, I actually want to see what misogynists are are saying so I don't want that filtered because I want to expose them. I want to counter them. Uh, and you could say the same thing with anti-Semitism. Some people um, have a, a, a definition of anti-Semitism that stretches to sort of criticism of Israel or, or sort of boycott boycotting Israel. Um, others would say no, uh, boycotting Israel is a legitimate criticism uh, of, of Israel, and and so you could have you could have the ADL, which which advances a very broad definition of uh, of anti-Semitism, could develop a filter that you could voluntarily apply, but not try to pressure Mark Zuckerberg or others to adopt ADL's very broad definition, which then becomes the default for everyone and limits important uh, uh, discussions. So I think that's that's one sort of Solomonic solution, which I think is the only one that, that makes uh, sense on big centralized platforms until we get back to the good old days of the blogosphere. <laughs> So you call yourself old, but I think I, you know, I vaguely remember this also from my youth, various forums and blogs and what have you. But it's interesting that you should say that such tools could be implemented by outside groups and then voluntarily by users um, because such technology does already exist. And this is going to seem like a very silly comparison. But I remember when the new newest Star Wars movies started coming out, you could implement a tool, a blocker, if you wanted to, to block all spoilers for Star Wars. And so yeah. the fact that that still doesn't exist is a really good point that users can either implement or not. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's, um, you know, a good, I guess, wrap up question then is what's the ultimate danger of not moving more quickly to decentralize, uh, you know, limitations on free speech, um, especially on social media platforms when clearly such technology already exists? Yeah, I think the danger is that, you know, Silicon Valley companies started out as these uh, techno-utopian civil libertarians with free speech ideals, and then they uh, became uh, huge. Uh, and then, you know, they got tired of being hauled into hearings on Capitol Hill all the time. And they sort of <laughs> say, okay, we'll just, you know, uh, you know, we'll engage in, we'll content moderate according to sort of PR to avoid shitstorms, basically. And and then you have a constant changing of, of the red lines, you know, oh, de- Democrats are in power now, so we have to be sensitive to uh, disinformation on, on COVID. Oh, Republicans are are, are in power, so, so the red lines uh, shift, or this, uh, we're getting pushback on this issue or, 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 or that issue. And, and also, you know, 
Google was secretly working on a on a project to uh, to to create a search engine for China, uh, which which would incorporate the dictate of the of of, of of the totalitarian party, basically. And I think you know ultimately money talks for 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 these big uh, tech companies. Uh, even if I know several people who work there who who have who have got good principles, and at the end of the day, they're in it for the money. And and if that means limiting more free speech, uh, then that's probably what they're going to do. And that will have huge consequences for all of us. And that's why I think uh, decentralization is, uh, is is crucial. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting and enlightening discussion. And well, not discussion. I didn't really do any talking. <laughs> I did all the talking. And I really, really appreciate your expertise and Town Hall for hosting us. Thank you so, so much for being with us, Jacob. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, anyone has any follow-up, uh, I'd, I'd love to continue the discussion online via email or social media or, or whatever. So thanks a lot. Yes, Carolyn, thank you for leading this conversation. You still, you did a lot of work. Don't discredit yourself. <laughs> yeah, you did. And, and I just asked <laughs> questions. Yes. And Jacob, you are not just a lawyer. You also don't discredit yeah, yourself. <laughs> <laughs> You're both doing great work. But Jacob, thank you so much for tuning in with us here at Town Hall. I know you're not here in Washington, but I feel you. I feel your energy. And thank you for being here with us and sharing your story. And I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. So uh, thanks a lot for having me. Town Hall Seattle presented this conversation with Jakob Mishangama on February 16th as part of their Civics series. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.